My name is Anda Ginska, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a digital content intelligence platform. I'm a massive data nerd who's fallen in love with storytelling. And so on the Pros and Content podcast, we will be featuring a series of really incredible leaders who believe in storytelling and who have different perspectives on the importance, measurement, scalability, and optimization of storytelling. Today on Pros and Content, Anda speaks with Ben Stewart the Chief Marketing Officer at Bank of the West. The conversation covers a number of salient points, from learnings and responses to recent global crises, to using content marketing as a differentiation point for good causes, to how a company needs to recognize mistakes and make it their responsibility to fix them in the future. He discusses Bank of the West's ardent support of sustainability and their successful partnerships with environmental advocacy organizations. At Bank of the West, that's also coupled with their content efforts and the tangible impact they've had through climate change activism. This episode was recorded on June 4th, 2020. We hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pros and Content. Um, I'm excited for today's conversation because it's been many weeks in the making. I think we were initially supposed to have this conversation about two or three months ago, but obviously, since we first scheduled it, the world has imploded in many different ways. Um, and so today I'm excited to talk to Ben Stewart from Bank of the West, um, and to talk to him about content, but also about how the bank and him in particular as a marketer has been navigating through this time of just tremendous uncertainty. Ben, it's a pleasure to finally have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's, uh, it's good to be here on a sunny day in San Francisco. What are some of the things that you guys have learned in the past few weeks? And I guess as a secondary piece to that, what are some of the changes that you've put in place that you think are going to stick around even post the crisis? Well, maybe it's just speaking from a business context. You know, it's, you know, we, we as, as a bank, I think a lot of the things that we did historically were fairly traditional and fairly linear and fairly time consuming. And I think one of the things that the COVID crisis has taught us is that if you need to move quickly, you can do it incredibly quickly. Uh, and if you need to adopt new technology, you can adopt new technology and utilize that new technology very rapidly. Uh, so uh, I think that's those are some things that it's taught us um, uh, in the in the outset. What are some of those, um, I guess, behaviors and technologies that you guys have adopted? I think moving from sort of standard video conferencing to uh, Zoom and WebEx, uh, I think moving from... Uh, from traditional uh, signed documents to DocuSign and truly automating uh, some processes that historically might have been manual, truly mm -hmm. putting uh, robotics and automation in place to just get some of that work done without the need for uh, uh, people uh, to get together. And then, you know, obviously separate from that, just learning how to collaborate and communicate seamlessly when you're miles and miles, if not states and states apart. Makes sense. In terms of the marketing activity, I mean, obviously, event marketing dollars have had to shift. But what are some of the less obvious things that you decided to do as a result of the crisis? Um, well, one of the things for us, given that a big part of our brand um, is based on sustainability as one of the leading sustainable finance organizations in the country, one of the things that, that we did is we, we looked in some ways as COVID as a wake-up call and a tailwind for sustainability, even though it's been an incredible headwind uh, to so many other industries and to businesses and individuals. And the healthcare system, but from a sustainability perspective, 
um, we, we look at it as a tailwind. Uh, in the month of April, there was a 139% increase in the amount of mentions and social media activity related to sustainability. And so one of the things that uh, we did, which is what a lot of other marketers were not doing, to answer your question, is we were really sort of building a marketing platform to build off the tailwind of sustainability and we're calling it sustainable recovery and we just we think that our brand and the policies of the bank are going to be more relevant in a post-covid world uh, even though they were incredibly relevant before they're going to be even more relevant um, as everyone returns to whatever normal may or may not look like I love the idea of sustainable recovery. I'm curious, when did your, um, I guess, relationship with sustainability start as a bank? Uh, started right on the heels of the Paris Climate Accord. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think you know, we're very, very lucky uh, to be part of BNP Paribas. BNP Paribas has been around mm -hmm. for you know, a couple hundred years. And they, they've got a very interesting perspective as to the role that banks play. Uh, you know, they go back hundreds of years and they look at banks and they say, look, there was a time when banks uh, did things and they did good things. They built roads. They made sure that crops didn't rot. They made sure that cities could be built and infrastructure could be built. Um, and somewhere along the way, banks sort of forgot that they were supposed to have a positive impact on society. Um, and, and then on the week, on the heels of the, uh, industrial revolution, you know, banks had an incredible role of expanding and fueling the industrial revolution with one hand. And on the other hand, uh, extending credit to consumers to consume more. So you've got one arm of the financial engine, uh, uh, driving expansion, driving production, driving manufacturing. And with the other hand, you're extending credit and extending liquidity for consumers to buy and consume. And I think here we are a uh, hundred plus years later after the industrial revolution and, um, and uh, Bank of the West and BNP Paribas thinks that, wow, we had a hand in creating part of uh, the environmental and climate crisis. And now we need to take an incredibly active role in fixing it. Yeah, and you know, right before the um, the podcast, I watched a video that your team shared with mine, and it was an unbranded video that was talking about the issues that the banking industry has created. Um, uh, you know, with within the realm of sustainability, did you guys produce that um, purposefully to be unbranded, or are you going to brand that going forward? Uh, well, we've actually produced branded and unbranded versions of that content. Um, we did we built unbranded versions of it so that we could share with other nonprofits so that they could get the message out uh, around the role that finance plays uh, in climate change. But we also built branded versions of it that uh, so that when we put them on our channels and uh, distribute them, that people know that it's coming from Bank of the West, but we actually uh, have mm -hmm. both versions of it. And that was absolutely on purpose. Interesting. That's a really innovative idea. I don't think I've seen that come out of a brand. Um, I think it probably sends the message to the consumer that the cause is more important than the brand, which, you know, hopefully also helps the brand. But I think it just says a lot about how you guys operate. Absolutely. You know, what I've told a lot of our partners, because we we're um, we're members of Protect Our Winters, the Conservation Alliance, One Percent for the Planet, and what I've told the heads and boards of those organizations is that 
My job is not to get your members to bank at uh, Bank of the West. That would be great. And I think we're an incredible institution. But my role and our role in terms of being part of those organization is to raise the salient level of awareness that finance plays in climate change and that it's really more of an educational role than a sales role. And that's why we have both branded and unversion because there are educational components of what we do. And mm -hmm. then there obviously is the head of marketing. I've got sales, sales aspirations as well, but, um, but uh, education is absolutely part of it. That's awesome. Well, it sounds like brand storytelling is a big part of how you guys operate as a marketing team. Tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, when you first came into the, into the role, how mature was that content function and how has that evolved since you've taken over? Um, I would say uh, when I took over, I mean, uh, uh, the the marketing communications department, I would say it was pretty immature, I think, but it was a it was a it was a transformational job. I think our CEO that came in, Nandita Bakshi, she had she had an entire bank to transform, and every uh, departmental leader that's come in has come in and go, wow, this uh, this department needs transformation and uh, and a pretty significant overhaul. So it was pretty immature when uh, when when I took over. Interesting. And from a content standpoint, what did you guys have and uh, what did you have to build in the in the coming weeks and months and years? Well, I think, you know, our our strategy, because we're, we're while while we're part of a very large bank, uh, BNP Paribas in the United States, we're not one of the largest banks. You know, we're not that bank that is mm -hmm. on every single street corner uh, across the country. And so one of the things that I found uh, when I came in is that the bank was doing exactly what the larger banks were doing uh, from a content, from a marketing, from a storytelling perspective. We were doing the exact same thing that the larger competitors were doing, but we were doing it at a much smaller scale. Our competitors were spending dollars and we were spending dimes and mm -hmm. that's a losing recipe. And so mm -hmm. we've built the entire content and brand storytelling uh, strategy for Bank of the West around differentiation and brand distinctiveness. How do we stand out and how do we differ from the competition as opposed to how do we mirror the competition? And do you think the fact that your challenger brand and that, you know, you, you had and potentially still have a smaller budget, do you think that changed the way you thought about building out this content function? Absolutely. Uh, we, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I almost evaluate every single decision based on how different it is. Um, hmm. even, even the choice of our PR agency. Uh, hmm. You know, we could have chosen a PR agency that was here in San Francisco or here in, in, or in New York. And we said, look, those are the same PR agencies that work for every other financial services company. So we, right. chose, a PR, we chose a PR firm outside Aspen uh, that <laughs> really, really, that really, really knows the outdoor space, really knows the conservation and environmental space. And still has contacts with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and things like that. But they approach those publications very differently. And the number of constituents that they know that overlap with our partners at Protect Our Winters Conservation Alliance uh, and 1% for the Planet is incredible. So there's great synergy and great distinctiveness. Uh, and so that's just one example of just trying to do things fundamentally differently than what a conventional approach to bank marketing might be. And when you think about the, the breakdown between earned, paid and owned content, how are you guys, uh, I guess, balancing between all of those? Because obviously some of these publications you could also partner with from a paid content perspective, and then you could also build your own storytelling internally and then syndicate it out. So how have you thought about that? I would say first and foremost, we're probably still learning, but 
Uh, I would say that any uh, head of marketing, CMO, whatever you want to call it, I, I would say they're all dealing with the fact that you need to do it all. There is no choice. Mm -hmm. There's no there's there's no market right now. That says oh, all we worry about is advertising. It's all paid. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's nobody uh, even Google has one of the most powerful and frequent websites on the planet who has you know, the ultimate definition of owned media. Mm -hmm. Even they have to do earned and paid. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, I was t telling this to someone the other day is that, you know, to be great um, and to be effective as a marketer, you need to be great in a lot of different areas. You can't just say, ah, oh, we've got a great social team and ah, the advertising is not that great. Or we've got great advertising, but we don't have a good social team. We don't have a great content team. You've got to really fire on a lot of cylinders to be effective in today's market. And there's probably a feedback loop between those three functions um, as well, right? Yeah, and there's a feedback loop, but there's also, we, we're, we're pretty good uh, with measurement. We've done marketing mix modeling, and we know sometimes when we overcorrect on social, we know uh, how well our paid advertising and what of our paid advertising is really driving effectiveness for us. So yes, you've got feedback loop, but you also got some pretty sophisticated modeling that we do to make sure that um, we, we load balance every single time we get some data back and make sure we're not uh, overweighted one way or the other. Yeah, so I'm curious, like you, you mentioned the, the data piece, which I love talking about. I'm curious, how do you guys think about the purpose of content and what does success look like for you? Like what's that singular metric or maybe a collection of metrics that you look at for content? Uh, this is, may sound surprising, um, but uh, the only metric that I really care about or pay any attention to is new customers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that is, that's the only reason uh, uh, I, I think that marketing really exists is to create marketplace demand. And yes, while there are mid funnel metrics and upper funnel metrics, if you like, if you like the funnel analogy. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, the the primary goal that we're going for is acquiring new customers for the bank. I'm assuming that is also taking them on a journey. And you mentioned the funnel. Um, so so I guess what, what does that mean that every single content asset is is measured against conversion? Or does that mean that you guys have different metrics that you track in different stages of the funnel? Yeah, de definitely don't don't try and get. Uh, somebody said you don't man you don't manage uh, or optimize a channel. You manage and optimize a marketing mix, and so we manage and optimize the marketing mix against customer acquisition. But to your point, uh, there's plenty of con there's plenty of content that we produce that is designed to engage. Uh, and is designed to uh, get people involved with the Bank of the West brand that's not directly involved with open up an account right now. Um, mm -hmm. But when you look at your entire portfolio of activity, whether it's search to direct response to promotions to content to advertising uh, to events, we do look at all of that in terms of how does it work as a cocktail recipe to get the outcome that you're looking for. And that outcome is always uh, new customers, but we don't evaluate every single tactic on new customers. Right, makes sense. So so I guess on that front, I'm gonna ask you a question that I think most marketers hate, but I think it leads to a good conversation, um, which is how do you balance brand marketing with performance marketing? Do you guys have a you know a percentage of budget that goes against each? No, I, I, there, there is a, a percentage of budget. Um, I think every company is different and categories are different. I would say that when I uh, took this role on, the primary lever 
that this uh, company used was direct response marketing, uh, typically mm -hmm. tied with an offer or a promotion. And while um, that is effective in its own right, um, it is not particularly scalable and it doesn't particularly surprise you at the end. You know, it's very rare do you do a direct response campaign and go, oh my God, I got 400 times more than what I thought I was going to do. <laughs> Typically, yeah. you get exactly what you thought you were going to get, plus or minus 5 or 10%. And mm -hmm. so that was what I walked into. And what I've seen, I've obviously worked at a, quite a few companies. I've worked at Charles Schwab at American Express and worked with Pepsi and Procter & Gamble throughout my career. And uh, the one thing that has uh, proven itself is that if you have the right brand marketing, the business responds right away. Um, mm. And that was definitely the case with us. I, I'm not a big believer that brand campaigns need to burn in uh, over the course of years. I think if you've got the right creative, the right message and the right media, you see the business results right away. And uh, we saw that uh, at Charles Schwab when uh, I launched Talk to Chuck. Uh, and we absolutely saw that at Bank of the West when uh, we launched um, A Bank for a Changing World. And we saw, we saw a dramatic, dramatic and immediate increase, um, not only in new customers, but also into our brand metrics and brand health measures. That's awesome. You know what I'm curious about, because you mentioned you don't need to do this, you know, over the course of years. Um, do you think about then like kind of a brand campaign every three years, a brand campaign every five years? How do you know it's time to do a brand campaign? Ooh, good question. I think it, I think a lot of it has to do with the health of your brand uh, mm -hmm. and even healthy brands. Uh, so even take, well, I think the longest standing uh, brand campaign in the United States right now is still BMW, the ultimate driving machine, which started in 1972. Um, mm. You know, I, I think very good brand marketers know that it's something that you continually feed and nourish and reinvent. Even I think the second oldest campaign is Absolute Vodka with their Absolute Bottle campaign. Even mm -hmm. that is continually reinvented. Um, and so I, I, I think you're, you, you're probably in trouble if you ever fully, fully walked away from a brand campaign or, but even if you just put it slightly differently, if you walked away from investing in your brand, then there mm -hmm. is a point when you're going to need to invest in your brand. And I think, uh, the data would prove that the most effective way to do that is to constantly be investing in your brand. Just so you're constantly investing in your 401k plan, if you just a little bit over years and years and years leads it leads to a big outcome. Uh, I think that um, that's the same thing here uh, in brand marketing. If you invest consistently, even at a low level over time, it does yield uh, big results uh, over the long term. And it's only when you when you get a short term focus and you stop investing in your brand, do you get to a low point where you say, oh, my gosh, I need to invest <laughs> in my brand again. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It almost sounds like it's um, it's almost like a bank account that you have to, you know, put money into uh, because it's constantly getting depleted a little little by little just by virtue of time and by virtue of the consumer being distracted with all these new offerings and new products. So it's I, I kind of like the analogy of having to just invest little by little. It almost gives you the license, I guess, to then be more transactional with your consumers through direct response and any type of performance marketing. Yep. I'm curious, um, as COVID hit, 
How did you guys think about what to lean into versus not? And, and I'm curious, in terms of the context of brand versus performance, did you guys continue to do performance marketing? Did you pull back? Uh, we did. Uh, keep in mind that um, of all the businesses that are out there, along with healthcare and grocery and hardware, banks were considered an essential business. And right. so we had to stay open throughout all of it. And what we found um, was that our new customer acquisition did not fall off that much. Um, we mm. were still getting within plus, not, plus or minus 9, 10% of the same amount of new customers. Even through the worst of it, even through uh, April and into May, we were still holding pretty steady with new customer acquisition. So we did not completely turn off our performance marketing, things like paid search and things like that, we still kept uh, digital acquisition um, uh, up um, uh, during that time. Interesting. That's it's a really positive data point to to have and for the world to hear. It gives me a little bit of hope. Um, in terms of the things you haven't quite figured out, it sounds like you figured out a lot. Um, I'm curious, what are what are some of the challenges that you think? I don't know, maybe you, maybe the team, or maybe just the industry at large still has that, that we need to focus on collectively as, as, um, as leaders. Uh, I would say from a content perspective, I think one of the things we haven't figured out is how to get the distribution right without just spending a lot of money. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as somebody, I'm sure this is not the first time you've heard this, but that, you know, Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn are not social media companies anymore right they're right. they're media they're media they're companies. media companies yeah and so yeah. uh so even though we i think one of the biggest challenges is just how do you get content out we don't really have a problem there's been so many advances in production so you can do super high quality production you can do it quickly you can do it at a at a high production quality uh but still getting that content out and getting eyeballs is still really difficult you can't always mm. bet on uh, a viral hit uh, and you can't always right. and you certainly can't rely on the social media platforms or the media platforms to mm -hmm. give you unfettered access to all of your followers and all of your right. uh, constituents you know at best you might get exactly exactly so i think i think the challenge remains how do you get great content out in front of people and i think this is something i don't know if we'll talk about this later but this is why the world doesn't need any more content. Uh, what the world needs is great content and relevant content. And so, you know, um, that's really the challenge. Even if you have great relevant content, it's still not a guarantee that you're going to be able to cost effectively get that to your desired audience. Interesting. What are your thoughts on content syndication? I mean, using some of the other platforms that are kind of just putting your content out in the open, open web. Uh, I think I think it can work, um, but it, again, the operative word there is can work. I don't think it does work. I don't think it always work. I think it can work, um, and uh, I think everything is very dependent on uh, on the quality of the content, the timing. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen uh, you've got the right message, but the wrong time. Mm, and just, totally. Mm, you know, depending on uh, just I mean, even just thinking of. What went on the last couple of days with the um, the blackout on Instagram? You know, yep. There's you know you you could have had a great timely uh, initiative set up 
um, uh, for a summer kickoff and then hit something like that and just go, wow, I was a, that was the right idea at the dead wrong time. So, yeah. um, uh, so I, I think, I don't think that content syndication, uh, is a silver bullet. I mm-hmm. also don't think, I think some of our experiences, uh, have also been with, even if you get paid influencers are not a silver bullet, uh, even great content platforms that have a great track record for producing content. Uh, that's not, uh, there's not necessarily a lot of what I would call leverage in those ideas either. Cause at the end of the day, you're paying for the production, you're paying for the social media platform and you're paying for the distribution of it. And I think what so many marketers are looking for is they're looking for, um, for leverage or value so that, wow, what I'm getting relative to what I'm spending is disproportionate. And, uh, I think that, um, you know, the, in an efficient market based system, I think Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and Twitter and the other social content platforms, they're all pretty efficient. They know exactly what their value is worth and they're priced accordingly. And there's not, there's not a lot of incredible deals to be had out there. Um, uh, so you've just got to be careful and judicious with how you invest. So you're telling me there's no silver bullet for being a CMO? <laughs> <laughs> no. If there, if there were, I, I'd have a bucket of them. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel the same about being an entrepreneur. I feel like entrepreneurs go around every month. We're like, oh, my God, this is going to be the thing. There's no there's no one thing. You said content quality. And I wanted to ask you, how do you guys I guess I'm curious. Like, how do you measure that if there, if there even is a way to measure that? Well, what we do is we have a creative review meeting where you have to check your ego at the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do it twice twice a year, and we put up all the work that we've produced, the content, any creative. And I will tell you, having done this at many of the companies in which I've led marketing, it's pretty consistent. Um, when, you, when you ask people to get their little dot, sticky dots and put them on the work that they think is great, it almost always coalesces around Mm -hmm. great work. And Mm -hmm. uh, I forget what's the book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Um, (laughs) that uh, quality is not subjective at a certain point. Quality is an objective measure. Uh, And I think think the idea that, oh, you know, quality's... Qualities up to somebody's uh, um, you know personal opinion. I haven't really found that. I've, I've found that great work uh, is great work, and it te- seems to uh, attract and transcend demographics and taste buds. And people go, "Wow, yeah, that's really good work." At least uh, within the context of uh, the folks who are evaluating our work, there's generally a high degree of consensus and agreement as to what constitutes great work. Makes sense. Um, curious as to how you guys think about remaining authentic and i'm assuming a lot of that deals with your message around sustainability but how are you trying to keep the team in check i guess more than twice a year in terms of putting out content that that feels genuine well one of the things that i talk a lot about because i think the banking and the finance industry overall doesn't exactly have the greatest um greatest track record of being authentic. And, you know, when it comes to talent and talent acquisition, what I tell people in the interview process uh, all the time is that the world doesn't need another dishonest banker. Um, And so uh, I think authenticity is incredibly important uh, to Bank of the West. Um, 
because I think sustainability requires um, a degree of candor and a degree of authenticity in order to be realized. So um, uh, I, I, think, uh, I think it's incredibly important, and I've seen this time and time again, where brands are not authentic, um, and they sometimes, I think this is also very interesting, you know, you know when you're dealing with a purpose-based brand, uh, and you know if you go and you dig into the DNA of a company or how a company got started, you will eventually find what was this company's purpose. And sometimes that company's purpose was we wanted to make money, we wanted a big exit. Um, but true, true purpose-based brands cannot be manufactured. Uh, and I think I think a lot of great marketers and I think uh, a lot of great talent, they're actively out searching for companies that are true uh, purpose-based brands. Um, and, uh, and I think one of the ways in which you can guarantee authenticity is by working for a, a brand that uh, was founded under a very specific set of circumstances, has a certain code among its employees, and has a certain set of ethoses that it brings to the market every day. And that's how you get authentic uh, marketing. Uh, I think you get sideways very easily when, um, when you're working with a company that doesn't necessarily have a North Star and hasn't figured out their why uh, or never even had a why. Uh, mm. I think that's where, when, you, when, you, when you get off the tracks. Yeah, I love that. So always going back to the values. Um, as you look at the next 12 to 18 months, what trends are you guys betting on as a marketing team? Oh, gosh, this is I think I wrote down an answer for this question. I think, um, you know, you can I, go and I read think... it out if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I think no, you're doing I, great. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think when I think of trends, um, I, I think of fashion. And when I think of fashion, I think of the difference between um, fashion and style. And so I, I tend to be more dedicated um, and a bigger fan of style than I mm -hmm. am of fashion. And so when I think of the things, what's the fashion is fleeting, style is everlasting. Um, so when I think of <laughs> trends, I don't really bet on them. Uh, but when I think on what are the durable aspects of marketing that tend to have more stylish components, you know, I, I, I look at things like great talent, great storytelling, um, passionate people, authenticity. Those are the things that I would bet on. And they're going to go through bull markets, bear markets, and weather them very well. I think you get into real trouble um, when you start chasing marketing trends. Um, uh, I know, I don't know how many people bet big, uh, even on podcasts, five, six, seven years ago. Oh, it's all going to be about podcasts. And, and it's only now that podcasts are really coming into their own. And so I think you just need to be careful. Uh, and I'm also a big believer that there are certain marketing channels that certain brands just do incredibly well at. Um, and if you find out where you're really good and where you stand out from your competition, you can stick with those and do very well and ignore a lot of the trends. Um, mm, and, yep. uh, and, and, I, and so, I, I, again, I tend to have a, uh, a slightly different ver version um, of how I like to manage things. It's not really against trends. It's really more about what are the things that are going to transcend trends. And I think authenticity, great storytelling, great people um, are going to be the things that uh, you focus on. And that, that'll, that'll help you navigate whatever is uh, popular or trendy at the time. I like that. I like the consistency message. 
So switching gears a little, talking about a career and building a career as a marketer. I'm curious, you mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, the importance of being good at a lot of different things when you're in this job. If you're a content marketer and you've decided to start your career by focusing on that, what's your advice to to that content marketer? Um, and, and do you think that if you start as a content marketer, you could aspire to be a CMO? Oh, I think absolutely. I was just having this discussion with an employee the other day. Um, I think what's really important is to understand what are the types of skills um, uh, that are sought out in leaders. And when you look at that, none of none of the leadership characteristics are things like performance marketing or great mm-hmm. writer. Um, I think you need to understand that what they're looking for is vision. What they're looking for is leadership. What they're looking for is being able to be a great left-right thinker, have empathy, uh, be able to uh, simplify complex subjects down to uh, actionable, simple thoughts. So there's, there are these other attributes uh, that typically people are looking for. Um, uh, you know, the other, yeah, one of the big things is uh, that people look for is authenticity to the point that we made earlier. And also, uh, can somebody challenge the status quo? And I think it's really important uh, for somebody when they're starting out in their career um, to understand what they're really good at and use that as their backbone to graft on other skills. I think there are plenty of CMOs that have come up that, that have started out in PR and crisis management, and they use that to add on other skills. So people have come up in brand and advertising. Other people have come up in performance marketing uh, or content marketing. Uh, and I think you need to have a strong backbone, uh, but I think you need to stay away from building skills that you can eventually just hire for. Uh, and I remember right. back in the early days of paid search, it was like, man, these paid search people, they're incredible. They know how to get so much value out. But within 18 months, it became, well, you can hire for that. And, <laughs> uh, but you can't always hire for vision. You can't always uh, hire for incredible leadership. You can't always hire... Um, uh, for certain untan- intangible uh, aspects. And I think making sure that you've got line of sight, whether you're a content marketer or somebody else, making sure that you understand uh, what are you going to be bringing to the party beyond the functional uh, delivery of a marketing channel and make yeah. sure that you're building a really robust and mature uh, uh, cap- set of capabilities uh, that are going to be important regardless of whether it's content marketing, performance marketing, brand marketing, uh, social media marketing, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think it's really important to have line of sight to uh, a skill set that transcends the uh, functional domain. The functions, expertise. yeah. 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 I like that advice. It's really great. Um, final question to you, Ben. What do you think the CMO of the future looks like? And what's uh, what are the skills that you're looking to learn uh, yourself as you think about that answer? Um, well, I think historically, and I think this may not change, but uh, chief marketing officers have always uh, been connected to humans, to people, uh, and they were always connected to consumer insights. Um, and I think there was a time when CMOs started to get a little obsessed with data and IT trends and technology and they got a little lost along the way. And I think that the CMO of the future is still going to be the person 
who brings the outside into an organization. I can't tell you how many organizations that I've gone to where if it hadn't been for the CMO and the marketing organization, the company would have been a completely insular, inward-looking organization with no idea what the outside competition looked like, no idea what an actual customer looked like. So mm-hmm. I think um, I think it's really, really important uh, for CMOs and heads of marketing uh, who have become a little more internally focused. Um, uh, I think the CMO of the future is going to be someone who sort of goes back to the future and starts um, bringing the outside in in a more rust- robust way. Um, uh, so it's still to bring the outside in, even though brand marketing has become more experiential, more mobile, more multi-channel. Um, uh, so, um, so it's just gotten a, the outside that they need to bring in has just gotten a lot bigger. But I still think the yeah. CMO of the future has got to be that person that breaks a hole in the corporate wall and lets the fresh air and insight from the outside world flow in. I love that. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for a really engaging conversation. I feel like I've learned a lot just listening to you on this uh, Zoom podcast. So thank you. Really appreciate all the insight and advice. Uh, My pleasure. Uh, Be well, stay happy, please. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pros and Content with Ben Stewart, the Chief Marketing Officer at Bank of the West. One bit of wisdom that resonated from Ben was his persistence surrounding how companies need to lead the charge and take responsibility in fighting climate change especially those in industries that have and continue to contribute to it. That advice extends beyond climate change to countless other crises we face today. Please remember to review and subscribe. And for more info, visit us at prosandcontent.co. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.